the rest of you, the rest of you, <laughs> the rest of you, we continue our series, this fun little series on the world, the flesh, and the devil. Some of you are like, I'm going to go to children's church now. All right, Ephesians, Ephesians, as we muddle our way, muddle our way through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that there is good things and important things to glean here. We'll read through verse 5. We're going to focus this morning on simply the phrase there in verse 2 about the evil one. Hear, hear God's word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. That's what we looked at last week. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, though, we get good news. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Praise be to God. Well, we are in the middle of what I'm calling just a, a series, a mini-series within the larger series in which we are kind of doing a deep dive. We, we did a quick pass through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Now we're going back and hitting on some key words. In particular, if we were to give this mini-series a name, we call it, I once was lost, but now I'm found. We're looking at the lost part here for these first three weeks. Last week, we looked at the world, not looking at that we follow the way of the world, not necessarily the creation or our planet, these are good and beautiful to God, but in following the world is a mindset that elevates the created things over the creator. It's a world and a mindset that is a kingdom that is against God. Next week, we'll look at the mindset that elevates the flesh and the self over God, the flesh. But this week, this week we talk about one who is called the devil. The devil. He has a name. Actually, he has many descriptive names in the scriptures. Here in verse 2, we see that he's called the prince of the power of the air. He's also called Satan. He's called Apollyon, which means the great destroyer. He's described as the tempter, the liar, the deceiver, the accuser. The devil is, in short, your enemy. Your enemy. You came into this world with an enemy. Before you ever spat on anybody, cursed anybody, you had an enemy and he hated you and everything about your life. Whether you consider yourself a Christian, whether you believe in the devil and his existence, whether you believe in him or not, you have a mortal enemy. You may not think about him, but he thinks about you. And he knows your name. He knows your name. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters, which is a whole book about an um, older demon writing to a younger demon, but before it gets to these letters about the older demon, Lewis says this, and kind of his prologue to the book says that they are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to believe in their existence. One is, I'm sorry, to disbelieve in their existence. And the other is to believe, but to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, speaking of the devils, are equally pleased with either error. I would ask you this, what would be the error of our primary error of our culture. Probably it is to disbelieve in his existence. As Verbal Kent says in the movie, The Usual Suspects, the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. 
Actually, you know what? The stats actually show that despite uh, a world in which it seems like the spiritual things are rejected, stats show that still more than 50% of Americans believe that there is an evil one, an evil power, a devil that exists, a power at work in this world, but we are confused about him. Or functionally, we don't take him seriously. We may give general tacit acknowledgement that something like an evil power, like a devil exists, but frankly, the trivialness with which we talk about the devil, he is a red pajama-wearing dude with a pitchfork who sits on our shoulder and squeaks, speaks with a, a whiny, squeaky voice. We name our sports teams after him, the Blue Devils, the Red Devils, the Demon Deacons. They're all actually church schools, oddly enough. They're all Baptists and Methodists, though. It's all right. This speaks to the fact that our functional view of life in the world does not include a real personal evil being that hates you and that wants to destroy you. In this little mini-series, we're looking at our lostness or our deadness in sin, that we followed the world, that we followed the evil one, the one who is called the prince of the power of the air. And what I want us to see in this, in this series is I want us simply to come to a better understanding of the grace, the, the uniqueness and the specifics of the grace of God, that when it says in verse 4, but God, by the grace you've been saved, that we understand what that is. What have you been saved from? And how are you saved? You see, what, the truth that we're going to look at this morning is quite simply this. We once lived under the reign of the one who hated us. We lived as a part of his evil, evil empire but now we live under the reign of a new king. Let's just look simply at those two points this morning. Each are lengthy, the one first one longer than the others. We once were lost, living under first the reign of our enemy. You came into this world living in the kingdom of the one who hates you. And here is actually Ephesians 2 in very short, brief form. The writer here, Paul, gives us a bunch of information about this evil one. He first says first that the devil is a powerful ruler, a powerful ruler. Ephesians 2 said he is the prince of the power of the air. A prince is one who rules, and he is a, he is a power. John 12, verse 31, when Jesus comes and says, I have come in this world to bring judgment. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Satan is actually not just simply called the prince of this world or the ruler of this world. He is actually called the God of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, it says this, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is an evil one who rules and he reigns in this world. He is God over this world. He is the king over the kingdom of this world. That kingdom that we, thought, we talked about last week, he runs it. He rules it. And his reign affects everything. It says this, it gives this odd description about in verse 2 as to who the evil one is. He is the prince of the power of the air. Air. That's like saying the rule that he has is like the air that we breathe. His rule and his effect is the water that we swim in. We talked last week about the world, and we saw that the world is the morally active kingdom animated by a hatred against God and his kingdom, and the effects of the world are ubiquitous. It seeps into everything in every part, and the reason for that and the animating energy behind the kingdom of this world is the leader of this world, the devil himself. 
He hates God and everything in God's kingdom. And so what we have seen from the very beginning, from the fall of man, that in the garden there has been a battle between these two kingdoms. C.S. Lewis says there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God himself and by Satan. And they are in a great war in this, in this world. But understand the evil one, his rule seeps into everything. Into everything. Into everything. Into the people, into the structures, into the systems, the organizations, the institutions. These things have a spiritual life force behind them, the evil one himself. And the kingdom of this world seeks to invade everything because the king of this world, the god of this world, seeks to seep into everything and make his rule and his reign effective in this place. And that is the world you were born into. That is the world you were born into into the world of an evil king. And it has affected everything, even when you didn't know it. It affected everything in your life. But not only is he a powerful ruler, we, see, we also see that the devil is described as a spirit. He is a spirit. It says here that he is the, the evil one, the powerful, the prince of the power there, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. Now simply what that means is this, is he is part of the spiritual and even heavenly and angelic realm. What this means is that the essence of the evil one is he doesn't have a body. He can take on physical form as we see in the garden. He takes on the form of a serpent, but he does not in his essence have a physical form. You in your essence, as embodied souls, in our essence have a body. The evil one does not. And the Bible compares the spirit. The spirit is like wind. In fact, the two words, spirit and wind in the Greek, are essentially the same. And who here can see the wind? You can't see the wind, can you? The wind is invisible, just as the spirit, a spirit is invisible. So how do you know that he is real? By the what? The results, the consequences of the wind. You watch your neighbor's cat fly by, and you know that cats don't fly, and therefore you say there must be some power and effect in this place. When there was that incredible storm a couple of weeks ago, and I had a 600-pound basketball hoop in my driveway simply flipped over on its sides, trash all over my yard. Now, what did I think had happened? That some of my kids had simply had a bad day? No, I knew something powerful had swept through my property. And the experientially, this is why we believe in the devil and also in God himself, in the spiritual powers, because we can see the spiritual powers, the effect of them at work in this world. The spiritual world is made consequentially visible, just as the wind is made consequentially visible. Under this material world in which we move and live and have our being, we understand there are actually more elemental forces at work. There are powers, spiritual powers. You cannot see them, but they are real, and they have real effect in this world. Now, what's interesting, and part of the reason why there has been a decrease over the last 100 and 150 years, 200 years, of belief in the existence of an evil one, at least in the Western civilization, is because in the Western world, in our academic and philosophical world, and for the most part, anything outside of the measurable world has been rejected. That if you cannot feel it, taste it, touch it, measure it, if there's anything outside of the natural system, then it is forbidden. It is closed off. That we live in a closed system so that we can evaluate it. 
rightly, we think. But this disenchanted assumption that has been brought to us by Western civilization has not won the day across the world. It hasn't. I mean, this is how the world works. If this is how the world works, that we live in a purely closed system, there's no God, no spiritual forces outside of this natural system breaking into it, well, someone forgot to tell the rest of the world. Go and, tell, go and give that idea in places like Africa and South America and India, and we might think, oh, well, we're way beyond that. Well, that's simply cultural elitism, and we don't want to be accused of that, do we? Oh, that's the worst to be accused of now. No. These things, we are, are we prepared to dismiss the belief systems of most of the cultures of the world, and indeed, we are so desperate actually in our own culture to look for something beyond this world that we are actually forming it and creating it in all sorts of ways artistically. You see, not only does the vast majority of the world's cultures clearly believe in the effects of a spiritual realm breaking into and being behind our visible world, but there is an actually a grassroots growing movement, even in Western culture, that is pushing back and moving back towards what we might call spirituality. We can see this even in the evidence of pop culture. In the last 15 to 20 years, there has been a rise of shows that highlight the supernatural. There was one that was, that was on and was very popular when I was in, in college in the early part of my 20s called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I think it actually it epitomizes, it epitomizes very well that kind of the world that we live in. She is a teenager who has been chosen as a young woman to do battle with demons. And yet the context and the collision, the, the real, the visible world in which she lives is simply her teenage angst and her high school and all the issues that go on there. That behind the activity going on in her high school is the collision of dark spiritual powers, and she has to do battle against it. Even my kids, they, they watch a show called PJ Masks, in which every night, three bizarre little critters change into the form of a lizard, a cat, and a bird, and they go and they do battle against these bizarre, amorphous figures in order to save the day for the school. That spiritual forces at work in the world and they become visible throughout the day, in the, in the night, or the day around their school. The Bible is saying that underneath the comings and goings, the people and the institutions of the world, there are indeed physical, spiritual powers intending to lead you away from God. And you feel the wind, the, 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 the great gust of their breath in, in the institutions and the structures and the people of this world. Think about this. We have this rise of killing sprees. And yes, we no longer simply immediately and quickly associate all mental illness with demon possession. But do we really want to, when we hear about some of the heinous activities that happens in this world, the utterly disgusting, horrendous mass murders and this terrible acts that happen, and do we all simply want to see, say that this happened because somebody conjured up these things in their own head? Can you really say that there's not something more going on there than simply meets the eye? Behind these things is not simply a few bad people doing bad things. Which makes more sense? Just a few people doing a few bad things, or that there is an evil one who has structurally, smartly, and systematically formed dehumanizing systems in this world. Which makes more sense? For example, the porn industry is not simply a few people who are simply more lusty and greedy than the rest of us. 
No, what has gone on there is that there is an evil kingdom at work in and through that industry and in the lives of those individuals caught up in it, but also in the industry as a whole, an industry designed and structured to systematically dehumanize. And it's taken hundreds and hundreds of years to form and shape for this moment. We wrestle, it says, against powers and principalities of this present darkness. It's spiritual. Thirdly, I want you to see what it says this. The devil's at work. He is working. The devil, every morning, puts his hard hat on. He grabs his pail, and he goes to work on you. On you. And what is his work? Oh, he's got many tools in his tool belts, but the two we see most often in the scriptures are these. Deceit, he's a deceiver, and accusation. He deceives and he accuses. In fact, in Revelation chapter 12, if you want to, <laughs> it's the strangest chapter in the strangest book of the Bible, but it actually is in giving in the spiritual, kind of what we might call <laughs> science fiction sort of look, kind of view, kind of a fantasy world, and actually showing in a spiritual form what is going on behind the scenes, where it talks about a red dragon and it coming to try to destroy a woman. The woman is the church, and that woman is given birth to one who will end this dragon. But here's what it says in verses 9 through 10. It puts these deceiving and accusing works together right with the name of the devil and Satan himself. It says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world, of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. What your ev- the evil one thinks about is deceiving you and accusing you. He, he works the designs of deceit. Jesus' name for the evil one is what? The father of lies. John 8, he was a murderer from the beginning, Jesus says, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. Deception is the key element of the devil and is described in this, in this way primarily in the scriptures What did he first do when he came into the garden? He came to deceive Eve and Adam. Deception is his specialty. If Satan were to open a store in this world, it would be called lies are us. And the result of his activity in this world is that men, before they are taken by Jesus and saved, we are simply dupes of a devious devil and we believe anything he says. Natural man lives under the domination and the whispering lies of satanic rule. Now we tend to think of this satanic domination as looking like a deranged, demon-possessed person, but do you remember Aunt Edna from a couple weeks ago? This is primarily how he works in the Aunt Ednas of the world. Yes, oh yes, he takes great forms and manifestations in the Hitlers of the world, certainly, but by most people, it's, he comes to them and whispers in their ear, you can do life without God. He, the devil didn't come to Adam and Eve and say, why don't you just... He didn't go, Eve, why don't you take out Adam? Would you kill him? You don't need him. No, he simply said, did God really say, do you really need God? You can do life without him. That this is, this is life, this is really all there is. 
You know how life really works best. You know how it works best. You know it better than God. These are the insidious lies of the evil one. And in his deception, and it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, we already read it, he blinds us. And he keeps us from seeing the light. From seeing the light. And when you are blind, how do you get around? Someone else leads you by the hand. You're at the mercy of the one who leads you, of your leader. And this is exactly what the evil one does. He comes and leads you by the hand. He whispers in your ear and says, I'm taking you to good places. He promises all sorts of things, but he never delivers. He uses half-truths to manipulate and control. He twists the word. He twists God's world and God's creation in order to manipulate us. He takes full truths, real truths, biblical truths, and he twists them and twists their implications and their meanings to deceive you and to lead you along. This is a, the tool and the weapon of the evil one. Here's the other one. Accusation. Accusation. The Greek word translated as accuser is the word diabolos. So we know we, how we translate diabolos? Devil. Devil. It's used 35 times in the New Testament. It is translated as adversary, accuser, or devil. And we've already seen in Revelation 12 that the, Satan loves to accuse. How, when does he accuse? Every once in a while? No, it says it's all he thinks about day and night is accusing. In Zechariah 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, there's this courtroom scene where a high priest of Israel named Joshua is standing before the Lord, and Satan is at his right hand accusing him. Satan, this is who he is. It's his name, accuser. He is the cosmic finger pointer and blamer. Evil will accuse you of sin, sometimes accurately, because you actually did sin, sometimes inaccurately, and he doesn't care. The enemy often makes a claim against you by appealing to your sinfulness. The accuracy, the accuracy, hear this, of his accusations largely are irrelevant. The purpose of bringing accusations against you is that you might labor and live under the darkness and under the weight of guilt and shame because he knows these things will destroy you from the inside out. He seeks to shame you by accusing you of something unlovely about yourself, about your weakness, about your frailty, about your sin. And consider this, consider the, the manipulation that goes on here. He is the deceiver, and then he is the accuser. The evil one deceives you into doing his evil bidding. He lies to you to get you to do what he wants. But then having, having convinced you to do something sinful, he then turns around and he says, Ha-ha, now you're condemned. The tone changes. It was, just do it. It feels good. This is all there is. You don't need him. You're in charge. You know better than he does. Then the tone changes after you fall into sin. You are unworthy. He'll never love you now. You're unlovable. You're guilty. You're a stupid. What a piece of. You see, before you sin, the evil, the devil says, go ahead and do it. It's no big deal. Everybody else does it. And then afterwards, he said, you're pathetic. You're no good. God will never use you. He accuses you. And when he accuses, his accusations call for what? Every, every, every sin comes with the penalty of what in his, under his tongue? Death. Condemnation. Death. The result of his work, the great, the, the lengths that he's going to deceive and accuse is to bring about what in your life? Death. He wants to destroy you. John 8, 44, in calling the father lies, he also said he is a murderer. 1 Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
seeking someone to devour. You ever watch the Discovery Channel? You know when they're like the, the cute little antelope are out there bounding in the... And then there's the one who's like wandering off on the side, the little baby? That's you. That's you. That's how he sees you. He is the lion on the prowl. The lion hides. The lion is patient. The lion looks for weakness. The lion looks for opportunities. The lion has his tactics for prowling. And so evil waits for missteps, for weakness, for opportunities. The biblical term for this prowling is the word scheme. 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 The evil one schemes. Ephesians 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 11 says this, Put on the whole arm of God that you may be able to stand against what? The schemes of the devil. 2 Corinthians 2, 11, So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Same word. Scheme, designs. The definition of scheme is this. It is strategizing with evil intent. The devil sets up snares or traps. Did you know that? The image of an enemy patiently waiting to make a surprise attack like a lion. Traps are set up ahead of time in a place where we will not expect them. The evil one plots your destruction and he's been doing so for a long time. He plots your fall. He is doing everything he can to set you up. One of the best Things I've heard in a long time on spiritual warfare was by a counselor named Adam Young who's got a podcast in which he did a whole season looking at the idea of spiritual warfare and how he engages with it in the counseling room. He said this, and it's so interesting. He said, the accusations that the evil one uses against us how have a fittedness to you. The evil one fits his accusations to you. They are custom made to you and to your story. And not only that, but in your story... He has been wielding and shaping and scheming. He takes the long approach. You know, it's interesting in the church world, we often have this experience where someone who has been walking with Jesus for years and years and years and years and years, and then all of a sudden, boom, adultery. Boom. Oh, they cheated on their taxes. They're going to jail. Boom, addiction. What's going on there? The evil one has been wielding and in shaping a story for a very, very long time. Day in and day out, the scheme of the evil one against your heart has been strategic and consistent and intentional over the course of your life. Because this counselor, Adam Young, asked, said that we should ask this question. I think it's so good. How do the accusations that level you today, the evil one's words and whispers in your ear, they sometimes have your voice. The things that you have agreed upon that you don't like about yourself. How do those accusations that level against you today, how do they have a kind of fittedness to your story? And when did they start? When did those accusations first take root in your life? What accusations are the ones you hear over and over and over again? You're a bad mom. You're incompetent. You don't work hard enough. You're dangerous. You're a fraud. You're overweight. And you ask yourself, how old, how old is that voice? For many of you, you will come to realize it started at 7, 8, 13, 14 years old. When mom looked at you and said, you're just too sensitive. And the evil one took that and took that seed and said, Let's sow that into something destructive in your life. Satan is unimaginably cruel. He is full of malice and hatred, and he hates you. 
He hates Jesus. He hates God. He hates this church. He hates you. He hates your children. He hates your grandchildren. He hates everything that is precious to you and precious to God in this world. And the work of this enemy has such consequences that it's touched every life in this room. It is ripping families apart and friends apart. He wants to destroy everything that is good and beautiful in this world. This is our enemy. But don't you want to ask, because the Bible is so unclear about this, how, how did Satan get here? Like, couldn't we have just avoided this? This seems rather easy. Why would God, if he is all good and all powerful, why did God create a world where an evil being exists that can do, create so this amount of harm against those who God loves? Here's the definitive answer that we must give. We don't know. And you should appreciate that. That is a response that is far more tolerable and palatable than someone who will stand in a children's cancer ward and try to give you reasons for such evil. Instead, what the Bible does not provide us may be some sort of philosophical or intellectual argument. Instead, the Bible gives you a promise. He says this, evil is here, but it will not have the last word. It will not have the last word. You see, God told from the very beginning of this story, when this battle was waged, the evil one entered this world and brought about the fallenness of Adam and Eve. He deceived them and lied to them and then accused them such that they went and hid. And what did God come and say to the evil one? He said, listen, there's going to be a war between me and you. We're at war. That there will be an enmity between you and the woman and the seed of the woman. He set it up from the very beginning. And you may, you may strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. But God. You see, the world has lived under the domination of this evil one, but God. That's why those words are so good. But God in his grace has come to make you alive, to save you from the dominion of darkness. And so this is the second thing we want to look at this morning, the victory over our enemy. Jesus came in to the world to do what? To crush the head of the evil one. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared, very clear, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus come? To reverse the work of the devil, to take away the power of the devil's work. He had to do what? He had to take away his weapons. He had, dis he had to disarm him. And guess what? Colossians 2.15 talks exactly, uses that language. It says this in Colossians 2, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Who's the authority in this world? Who's God, the prince, the ruler, the evil one? That's who it is. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. How did he do that? The, verses, the two verses before that, we see it. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, and you are dead in your trespasses. Now that sounds strangely familiar. And the transgressions of your flesh... God made alive together with him, almost like he's copying and pasting, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. How does he disarm the evil one? The cross. This is how Jesus disarmed the powers. He has taken away Satan's power to hold sinners to the debt of their sins and trespasses. He's taken away his accusing abilities. Jesus take away all our sins that stood against us. Therefore, you are now innocent of all the charges the evil one brings against you. Satan is not your judge. He's merely your accuser. 
And you can tell him to get out. And need accusation is the chief weapon of Satan against Christ and against us. But Jesus has taken the law's curse, and therefore he has taken the main weapon away from the evil one. No claim, accurate or inaccurate, now has any place in your life, has any power to condemn you, because Jesus has nailed it to the cross, each of those claims. Because Jesus has chosen to come down. This is his answer to evil. He said, I will come down into this hellish world, and he took on human form, and he allowed evil to rip him apart. To rip him apart. So on the cross, so on the cross, and the worst thing that could happen in this world, we see God bringing about victory against the evil one, and the redemption of all God's people, leading captives out. And at the cross, Jesus takes away the tool of accusation by taking away our sins and taking away sin's penalty. And then at the resurrection, which we celebrated a couple weeks ago, he takes away the teeth of the devil's power, doesn't he? He takes away what? Death itself. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says this, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that means Jesus connects with us, shares our flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of these things, that through death, Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And to deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You know what? The person who can hold a gun to your head and say, do what I I tell you to do, that person holds you enslaved. And now you can look at him and say, you're firing blanks. You have no hold on me. And so Revelation 12, verse 8, tells us that this devil has been defeated. He's been thrown down. This is why he's so hacked off. He is so angry because he knows his doom is sure and his time is short. And then it says this in verse 10. We've already read it. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And yet he says, Get out of here. He came as a warrior, and he has broken the back and the voice of his enemies. God has defeated the great enemy of your soul so that you may experience nothing but him as the lover of your soul. Why did Jesus come? To destroy the works of the devil. And the work of the devil is complete death and destruction of the men of this world. And if you destroy death and destruction, you simply reverse that, which means you do what? Repair and restore and save. And so Jesus came to restore what the devil has broken in this world. Where the devil makes men blind, Jesus comes to give sight. Where the devil makes, brings death, Jesus brings life. Where the devil leads men into enslavement and disobedience to God, Jesus comes to lead us into the freedom of obedience to God. And salvation then is deliverance full and finally and completely from the power of the evil one. That means, come what may, come what may, the evil one may accuse, he may do you harm, he may seek to do, hurt you, he may seek to deceive you, he may come to you and try to condemn you, and you can look at him and you can say, devil, do your worst. For he cannot hurt you. Now there is a, in Christian history, there's maybe no one who has actually spoken with such audacity and such kind of ferocity to the evil one like Martin Luther has. Here's some some of the quotes that Luther has given to the evil one. He said this, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Christ Jesus, the Son of God, and where he is, I shall be also. 
Later on, he says, tell me something new about myself to these ones. Oh, you want to tell me about my sin? I already know. And Jesus has already dealt with it. Think of a pastor friend who was sitting at the, at the bedside of a, of, a, of a man that he had led to the Lord. This man had lived as a non-believer his whole life, and then he was diagnosed with a terminal cancer. And in the process, he became a believer. And this man knew, this man was now down to his final days, maybe weeks, and the man said, that he, this, this pastor he said, sometimes I feel as if the devil is sitting on my shoulder, and he is whispering in my ear, it can't be that easy that Jesus simply paid it all. It can't be that you have the righteousness of Christ. And he says, I feel as if the devil is telling me, you don't measure up. You don't actually belong to God. You're simply grasping onto him because you know you're about to die. And he says, what do I say when these thoughts come into my head, when the evil one whispers, what do I say to this? And the pastor's friend tells him, tell the evil one to go straight to hell. To go straight to hell. You see, the people of God get to redo what? Resist the evil one, and we are promised that he will do what? He will run scurred. He will flee from you. And, so, and understand this. We can walk with confidence in this world, even when we've sinned, because we had one who was one who always accused, but now we have an advocate, an advocate. And understand, it's so beautiful and so good. Understand that Jesus is now on a victory march, a victory march, of taking over this world. And all of those who are under the dominion of darkness, he's come to plunder the devil's house. The gates of hell shall not prevail against God and his church. That's an offensive. We always think of that as being defensive. No, no. They actually, the context of that passage is, it is an offensive statement. And Jesus loves to ride in the darkness and pluck those who belong to the evil one and make them his very own. There's this interesting little story that Jesus gives, this little vignette in Matthew, where Jesus says that he, he, he must enter the house of the strong man and bind him up so that he may plunder all his goods. And Jesus says, that's what I come to do, to bind up the evil one so that I may then run rampant through his house, stealing away those who are part of his house. And Jesus continues to do this, to take captives from the house of Satan and bring them into the house of life of the king of heaven. David French, you may have heard of him. He is a, he's a believer. He mostly writes about political life. And recently, he, though, he, in last Easter, he told simply just, a, and it is where he writes, he simply wrote stories of conversions. He said this, I've seen many people pass from death to life. The closest of friends completely lost to drugs, who walks into a courthouse the very moment his wife is on the verge of dissolving his marriage. He walks in and he falls on his knee and admits to her that he is powerless, that he is dead in sin and his addiction. And you know what? That man now lives. He's clean for 12 years, still married. And now he spends time with other addicts, telling them that they too can pass from death to life. French tells of another story, a young student of his who was lost who was lonely, who was far from home. She walks past one of those wild-eyed university preachers. We've all seen them. They're never usually very good, are they? They're not great. They usually say terrible, awful things, but this one just so happened to say this one line. He said, Jesus loves you. And wouldn't you know, instantly something was stirred in her, and she thought, yes, yes, he does. And she never looked back. He gives one other story. He said there was a young woman from Tennessee, and she was lost in despair. She had been victimized as a kid by a pedophile preacher. Her best friend then died of a terrible car accident. A former boyfriend almost choked her to death in a brutal late night attack. She hated Christianity. 
But soon after she married her new husband, who she rushed to marry and really didn't know very well enough to be marrying her or him, nor him her, well, he took her to church. And there she heard about the grace of God and about the resurrection power, and a flame of life filled her soul. And David French said, that young woman from Tennessee, her name was Nancy, and she is my wife, and she is alive now and for all of eternity. You see, Jesus is plundering the house of the evil one, but God, but God. You see, we have a champion. We have a victorious king. You see, that the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is no one left to condemn you. And therefore, there is nothing can, that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No trial, no suffering, no persecution, no danger, no in all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That sounds familiar. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you give us an awareness of the world that we live in. That you would give us eyes to see the works of the evil one. And that, frankly, Lord, it would change our approach to doing life. I pray that fathers would become men who love to pray. Because as the gatekeepers of their home, they would see that they have to prepare themselves. And they stand in the gap. But we are little warriors wearing armor that is too big for us. But praise be to God, we stand next to Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, may you make us men of prayer to do spiritual warfare on the behalf of our kids and our spouses, that we cry out to you to protect our homes. God, I pray that you would make us, when we go on campuses and in workplaces, where we enter into the various institutions, when we enter family gatherings, that we would say, I'm walking on enemy territory. And so, Spirit of the living God, I pray that you'd gird me up to do battle. And Lord, where the evil one seeks to attack us, where we become overwhelmed, overwhelmed by our own personal battle, oh, Spirit of the living God, I pray that you'd come and convince us once again of the work of Jesus, that you would silence the words of condemnation, of accusation in our heads, and instead we would turn with tears in our eyes, and you, that you would write a new story in our lives, a new story of love and acceptance and victory and freedom in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.